Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, you're with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan, and we're on Big Little Small Talk. It's that segment where I go out into the community and I get to talk to people who I think are going to be an interesting conversation. Now, I am away at the Sunshine Coast, and last night I met a wonderful woman called Virginia Clark, and she has got a Toowoomba connection because she was working for a long time for our Senator Claire Moore, who is a long-time Toowoomba resident. Welcome to Big Little Small Talk, Virginia. It's a pleasure to be here, and by the way, I must say, it was always a pleasure to go to Toowoomba, because Claire would always say, we've got to go up to Toowoomba. Shakespeare in the Park is on this weekend, so all the years they have that, go up to it and you know those lovely cafes they do the best picnic baskets oh it was so lovely and you know that Queen's Park is so magical anyway so yes I just wanted to say that because I love going up the range as we say in Brisbane (laughs) well today you're an honorary Toowoomba person and it's somebody's birthday today whose birthday is it Virginia oh apart from Guy Fawkes And I do love a cracker. It's my birthday today. And I always think it's an interesting birthday to have because when we were younger, and younger people today don't remember, bonfire night. So I had a choice. I could have a little party at home or I could go down to the beach at Sangay and see the bonfires with all my teenage cousins. And it was easy bet, that one. But it's such a fabulous thing. But, of course, in the Northern Territory... They still can sell fireworks, you know, and in Canberra as well. And uh, I was talking to some people from there yesterday and we were saying, remember back in the day somebody always lost a finger or an eye or a toe? And she said, oh, it's still happening up there. And they want to ban it, but everyone's fighting against it. I did hear an interesting story from another friend who's also at this conference, and that was Kerry Shine, that Catholics weren't allowed to go to Guy Fawkes because it's a Presbyterian ceremony. Do you know anything about that? Oh, that's because Guy Fawkes was Catholic and they put the gunpowder under the House of Parliament because the Catholics weren't allowed to practice their religion after the Reformation. And it's always said part of a papist plot. So Guy Fawkes was a Roman Catholic. And I think it was about the late 1600s, yes. So after Elizabeth anyway, after the Reformation, yes. So Virginia, I want to talk to you. Um, We're surrounded by a lot of really fantastic people here at the Labor Conference today. And I made reference to the fact that you were working for Claire Moore. What were you doing for Claire? I worked as her electorate secretary. And it was really fascinating because um, a senator covers the whole of the state. So we would have people ringing up, even from New South Wales. There were times when, you know, people in regional areas really struggle. And they would say, oh, you know, I just, I looked up her name or they'd read something about us. So they'd ring up our office asking for help. And I don't think we ever turned anyone away. And we'd have people walk in off the streets. Now, sometimes their problems are just state problems. And a lot of officers would say that, just go down the road. But we never did that. We did the heavy lifting. I think the community is exhausted by the amount of stuff they have to do 
you get anywhere. So, you know, sometimes a politician's office can be a great place to go to get expert advice and they can make the phone calls, they can do the research and they can disentangle it for you because that's what we used to see, exhausted people coming into the office saying, I, I can't handle the family law court stuff anymore or whatever, um, visas for family members for, you know, first generations Australians. So they want their mother to come out because she's a widow now. Those sorts of really human problems. Anyway, it was really lovely working there. It was so much fun and Claire likes to travel. And so she'd say, oh, I think we'll have to go up to Toowoomba this weekend, Virginia. Or, you know, uh, we went to Bar Colden quite a few times. And of course she travelled across Australia in the inquiries. And the inquiries are the meat and potatoes of the Senate. So they go and do the investigation and write the reports that eventually becomes things like the National Redress Scheme, which is about restitution and reparation for children who were sexually abused in institutional care, and that could be in the schools, churches, foster care system, and uh, yeah, that was one of the most gut-wrenching inquiries we've ever had to deal with. And I still see people to this day, like about 14, 16 years later, who remember that inquiry, remember Claire, and remember coming into our office and talking to me. I want to talk about the redress scheme another little bit and particularly in relation to what the work that you're doing now but let's just go back to when you were working for Claire so what sort of era was this and how long did you work for her? I started working for Claire when she started in the Senate 2002 which was the centenary of the suffrage bill for the federal parliament for women and of course the federal parliament only started in 1901 and so the next year they brought in the universal suffrage. As a matter of fact we looked it up the other day and universal suffrage doesn't mean that everyone gets a vote. It said uh, universal suffrage oh, except for women and stuff like that. Uh, I thought that was really interesting but uh, yes Australia was after New Zealand the second country in the world to give the vote to women. And also, interestingly enough, they also gave it in all of the states to, for some bizarre reason, indigenous women. But they managed to take it away a few years later. Well, I did not know that. So the indigenous women were given the vote, but then sometime after that, it was taken off them. Yes, I know quite a few academics who sort of research this and of course a lot of that history was so lost to us but in the last 20 years especially the centenary of suffrage booted it up um, back into the view and sort of when you think about 2001 we're just past you know the second wave of feminism and things like that and um, it was really gritty research for women I think what happened was a lot of Aboriginal women just went and got themselves on the roll. And nobody knew who they were until... And, but then a few years later, I think it was when Indigenous people were brought under the Act, which is the um, 
I can't remember the name of the act, but you know the one that ends and opium act. It's a terrible act. Anyway, that's the one that was repealed in 1967 after the referendum. So, Virginia, had you been brought up in a very political household, how did you manage to score that job with Claire? Well, I have to say that my family, my father's family comes from Claremont and out there, quite close to Barcolden and other places, were part of the Red North. And a lot of the people there are also of Irish backgrounds and I tend to find quite a lot of Irish people who came out of that diaspora from the potato famine onwards, tended to be quite political and um, wanted to come to places like Australia to get away. My, I found out after my aunt died at her funeral that she'd been secretary of the Claremont Communist Party <laughs> when she was 18. My uncles ended up wharfies and they certainly weren't communists, but um, they, were, they were all trained politically. They just knew about politics. I think you could all have called all of my relations Bush lawyers. They knew everything and they were wonderful people. And I just loved going to visit them. It was nothing to go to my aunt's place and my grandmother lived there, my great uncle, and they had eight children. And there would be 25 people on this very long table down the side veranda to Sunday lunch. So all my older cousins there, teachers, college friends, the parish priest, amazing people, local politician. And one of my uncles was a Labor Party member, but he came up through the unions. So in regional Queensland, lots of people worked on the railways and that's where he come, came from. And my other uncles and various uncles were like, ended up as wharfies, you know, up in Townsville and then came down to Brisbane. Rocky, that's another place where they had the seaports and stuff. So I think those sort of really hard, like shearing, jackarooing, all those hard labour jobs, they fought for their rights at work and very important and I think that's where my politics come from, the dignity of labour. I just think it's so important that people are paid properly. And that's where it all came from. So when you, you, you had grown up in Buckalden, is that correct? No, 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 no. My family came from Claremont. Um, I, I was born in Sydney, mum's from Newcastle. And then we moved up to Queensland and we lived at Sandgate for quite a while and then we moved to Nala, which is one of those interesting socio-economic places and that was really a great place to grow up in. In my high school there would have been 60 nationalities. It was a jumping off point for all the Waco um, immigration camps and stuff like that. People went to Nala and then left but it was a huge, there were 10 primary schools, two high schools, about 10, 20 kindies. It was a really big one. It's, it's scaled down now because you don't have big suburbs like that anymore. But yeah, and that was a very political place to live. Political in what sense? Well, it was 
housing commission area, all of it. Um, some of it was post Second World War, like um, RAF or um, army housing, and then it transformed into housing commission. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of tra transgenerational single parenthood. There was, yeah, a, a lot of unemployment. And when I was growing up, there were a lot of factories that circled in Nala. And by the time I was in my late 20s, all those factories had disappeared and had been bought off for housing estates. And, and you couldn't get out of the place. You know, there was a really poor bus service that finished at about five o'clock and the train station was two suburbs away. And you know, for young people, you just couldn't get into the city like that. And the other thing about it is every Sunday, you know, like several times a year, there'd be big headlines about Anala on the front of the Sunday Sun, or the truth, as it was then. And what were, the, what were these headlines? Oh, you know, giant brill, you know, you know, hoons, bikies. It was always negative stuff. And yet, I thought it was a great place to grow up. It's a really terrific, warm community. All sorts of different, interesting people, you know, Scottish people, Irish people, um, large Aboriginal um, population, and proudly so. Uh, it's just a melting pot. Was there a lot of Vietnamese refugees at that stage? No. So by the time I was in later high school, that's when we got the first lot of boat people. Um, and now it's huge. Like the Civic Centre is like a little Asian city. It's really cute and very good food. <laughs> so dare I say, when you read Trent Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe, you really could um, understand and you knew all about those suburbs. Is that how you felt? Oh yes, yes. And the other thing is, I've read lots of books about that generation because when I was in Anala, uh, friends of mine had a band and they went to England, they became quite famous. And then when I went to uni, I was really friends with the go-betweens and I ran their first dance. And I'm still good friends with um, Robert Forster. And I mentioned in the book, as his muse, yes. But the other band was The Saints, yeah, with Chris Barley. And I went to school with Chris. And he recently died, it was so horrible. You know, the family are quite devastated. And four months later, his nephew died. I'm still a bit railing from that. But, you know, it's funny, I could see on Facebook all the people who lived in that area saying, oh, you know, oh, I'm gutted and that because even though we've moved apart, we're still a community. Mm. It's a, um, sometimes it's that, what you have to push against, that some, all these brilliant things come out of it. So you would have been in the era of John Kennedy and Acacia Ridge, um, John Kennedy and the Cuban crisis. Anyway. Oh, I would have been about seven. <laughs> oh no, I'm talking about a band there. Anyway, oh. we're getting, we're, um, we're, we're digressing. Okay. That's right, another facet to your personality. 
I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 102.7 FM and we're in big little small talk and I'm talking today with Virginia Clark who the more I talk to her the more <laughs> the more of her personality and interesting things and I'm only up to the stage where she's just left high school and I'm trying to get to where she started working for Claire Moore Toowoomba person but we're, we're back at high school so what happened when you left high school what did you go and do then? My first year at uni was 1975 and of course that was an interesting year. The other thing about that was we had free universities. That was enormously big because not many people from Anala went to university. But not only me and for instance Claire went to university at the same time. My mother said to me, she was a teacher, but she said to me, uh, how many of us? So Five of us out of the six have gone to university and most of us, not me, have got multiple degrees. Uh, She said, you would never have gone to university. We simply couldn't afford it. And it was because of the Whitlam government. I'm terribly sad that we don't have free universities anymore. I, I just think I lived in a golden age that my children, and my grandchildren will not see again. And it's so sad because, you know, I think we were living the dream. And things like Medibank. So it always breaks my heart to think of 75 when Whitlam was brought down. And I, I, but I think of the legacy all these years later, and we're still looking at the legacy, Medibank, Every time I travel overseas, people say, oh, it's amazing. Oh, you have four weeks paid leave, you know. We know that some countries, no, you don't even get paid leave. You know, it's crazy stuff. But, you know, Australia is the lucky country. And it's that big argument about how do you how do you increase productivity in a in a nation? It's by having people educated, isn't it? I think that's a largely accepted norm. But anyway, we keep digressing. So, what did you go and study, Virginia, when you went to university? Uh, I, I did a couple of things: uh, journalism, um, English lit, English, um, bit of history, I love history, and a classics. And then I I was a little bit distracted <laughs> as one is at university and I finally said oh you know I've got to stop this so I, I left university but I don't like unfinished business so later I went back and finished my degree and I had three children under six and I'd split up with my husband and I went back to uni while I was living in a women's refuge for a year and um, and then the next year I finished that, completed that degree, I was th- about 32 then and that was a really terrific thing. I often say to people, if you really want it, you'll do it, you know, and I really wanted it and then when I went back the second time, I got a double major in art history because that's a really fun thing to do. Lots of fun degrees, but how do you translate it into working? It's um, almost like a, a box that I can't quite get opened as to how you started working for Claremore. Oh, well, even at that stage in my 20s, I joined 
the Labor Party and was very active. Um, particularly, we have Labor women and I like to put all my efforts to the women in the party. And I always, the whole time I've been in the party since 1981, I've done that. And that's how I met Claire, um, through our women's caucus and that. And supporting other women. Very important to Claire and to me, it's just, we have the same ideas on this, to support our women. Claire has always supported regional women really important thing because out in the regions everyone gets a bit neglected. I have run in the regions myself and I've done a lot of support work for women in the regions but not just in this state and the same for Claire. That's why I started working for her because we were already working together on a volunteer basis doing stuff for women and um, when she I think at the time when she got the Senate spot, she we were marching in the streets for something and she said to me, would you like to come and work for me? And I said, oh, would I? It was so great. So we had to wait six months till, you know, the Senate has a different scheme to the House of Reps, but that was amazing, opening up the office and also having the ability to translate what you like doing, what Claire liked doing, helping people into a, a reality. And that was the really most important thing about that office and we just loved doing it. How long did you work for Claire for? Eight years. So then you thought, I don't mind this politics business, I think I might run and something was happening in the state at that time, there was a wave of politics that was coming through that you didn't particularly like the, the sound or the look of what was happening at that time, what was that about? That happened before, so that was 1976, 1976, 1976, 1996, Pauline Hanson got elected in the seat of Oxley. Now she'd been in council before and I had run for local council. I think council is brilliant. And I'm not just saying this, but anyway, I ran for local council, so fascinating. And in Ipswich, it was a real era of change. So we were getting the heritage legislation. We were the first town in the state to get heritage legislation and also to have a heritage listing. So Brisbane copied us and then they got the state listing shortly afterwards. But um, we were sort of like the first ones to do it. So it was a no-brainer to run for local council and for women it's a very personal thing. I find women are so successful as councillors anyway. and. Lots of, I had a friend whose mother was a councillor and it was really easy but when Pauline Hanson got accidentally elected in Oxley and the reason that happened was she was in the Liberal Party and then John Howard said oh she made some very objectionable remarks they disendorsed her but it was two months out from the election so on the ballot paper she was still a Liberal and there was just a little bit of a wave and the, she won the seat. But many Liberals said to me afterwards, oh, I had no idea, what have we done? 
And I thought, it just pays to pay attention when you're doing it. And she, I think her, her first speech was very offensive. She criticised single parents on benefits. I'd been one of those. And I was really pleased that the government let me have a benefit because I had three children with disabilities and I wanted to be a stay-at-home mum. And I had the choice. I don't think people have choices these days. You don't, I don't seem to see it anyway. But anyway, she was very objectionable about race and things like that. So for three years, we ran a very successful Ipswich-based anti-racism committee where we had giant rallies. We had people from all over the country coming to speak to us. It was really good. And then when she decided to jump to Blair, the new seat of Blair, because she thought, oh, it would be an easy one, because she drew up a whole lot of the country Liberal National Party vote, especially the National Party, their vote collapsed and she sucked it up. But she also took a lot of Labor voters with her. And um, so I ran against her in the new seat of Blair and she didn't get up this time. Um, so that's a win-win for me. You don't always get to go up, but sometimes it's important to fight those fights on principle, regardless of what, you know, some people go away and go, eh, I didn't win. And I keep thinking, huh? You know, look, you're not there. It's not about winning or losing. It is about how you play the game. I mean, what are the principles at stake? Are you being a good model? And, you know, for women, I always say, just go and have a go. We're not always going to be successful. And it would be lovely if we were, but, you know, that's the heartbreak of politics. Some people find it very exhausting. Sound like you've got pretty good energy, I'd say, Virginia. So, you, you weren't distra distracted by that. I know you've gone on and you're doing really great work. But I just want to go back quickly and talk about because last night we were talking about your grandmother and your aunt, who I was is led am led to believe that had 18 pregnancies. Can you tell me a little bit about that family? Um, so, as I say, that family, that part of my family has an Irish background, and. I, um, I remember my aunt telling me once, uh, she worked as a shearer's cook. She could make hats. She made all her six daughters' wedding dresses. She, marvellous milliner, and also the most beautiful Aaron nets and that. Those women, crochet, you know that, those women could do anything. I stand in awe. You know, she could dress a whole sheep, some of you don't know what that means. Explain it. It means, no, we don't put them in little frilly knickers. <laughs> it means to, uh, once the animal's killed, to take it apart and butcher it, basically, be the butcher. Um, she once said to me, oh, you know, darling, we were talking about pregnancies and that. She said, oh, I had one every year for a year, for 18 years till her fertility dropped off. And she said, there's only bits of brown paper bag inside me now. You know, she'd had a gallbladder out, she'd had this out and that. I'm going, oh, great. She was a tiny little woman too. And she's, so she had eight children who lived, but she had quite a few late-term um, 
miscarriages like six months and things like that and lots of other miscarriages but you know I thought how could you do that and run around and do all the things you do especially in regional areas no mod cons there I think the moment she got a washing machine she fell in love and of course she had all these older children so she just made them um, oh here's the washing machine oh wonderful invention Lots of children, make them all work. <laughs> but she also said the interesting things about regional areas and she said, oh, you know, in a place like Claremont, everybody knew who the local abortionist was and it was usually a nurse or a midwife or somebody like that who had probably some compassion for these overburdened women. And uh, yes, I'll leave out the gory details, but my aunt was very interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, as a young woman, I was about 22. Oh, this is interesting stuff. But you know, this is how they made the accommodations with the brutality of their lives. And especially Catholic women, I think. Um, I know so many Catholic women who've had abortions. It's not funny, you know, it's just, and it's a sad statistic or also, but I think things are better these days because people are more on the ball about reproductive, you know, like the pill and stuff like that. We have access to stuff. You know, back in the day, people had access to nothing. And I know lots of my older women friends tell me, they were told, don't you dare take the pill. You know, if your husband found out, you'd be in trouble. The parish priest would say, don't take the pill, you know. Now we take all that for granted, you know, it's not an argument. I often tell the story that after I'd had four of my sons, my mother-in-law said to me, Megan, do not have any more children. And I said, I'm fine, I'm happy, I'm, I'm great, I've loved doing this, this is what I want to do. But I realised at that moment, I had a choice. I wanted to do that. Whereas if you were a woman who wasn't coping very well or didn't have very good support or didn't have support from your husband or your family, or maybe you might have um, postnatal depression, and you just every month had to hope and pray that you weren't going to have another child. Look. I think that is the, the reality too. And of course we have all this access to people's diaries and interesting things. I remember my grandmother still corresponded with people in County Clare from her mother. And there are all these old letters. And one of my cousins said, oh, they're hilarious. They just say, oh, you know, the husband, oh, John has moved into the other bedroom. We all laugh because that was their contraception as Catholics. We didn't sleep together. And I thought, oh, that's, yeah. And they were all giggling and laughing about the letters. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And how people kept the connections. All her life, she wrote to these people in Ireland she never met. Well, that's the Catholic divorce is, um, there's people living in separate houses but um, let alone separate beds. And that was the Catholic divorce was, um, you didn't actually get divorced, was it? I'll just remind the listeners that they're on Big Little Small Talk on 102.7 FM and I'm speaking to Virginia Clark who has got a wide-ranging history, a wonderful history of Irish Catholic, Labour Party supporter, uh, women's rights, feminist. Uh, so Virginia, tell me about the work that you're doing now. We started to talk about it earlier and you're doing the redress scheme for inter institutional child sex abuse. Tell me about that. 
Okay, so I'm actually working for an Indigenous um, community group that was formed 38 years ago and that was about reunion for Stolen Generations people. But in the last four years, funding has become available to Relationships Australia, Blue Knot, all these other organisations to help people navigate the National Redress Scheme. And the scheme gives, at the end of the assessment, a certain amount of money, um, psychological care and counselling, and also a direct personal response. So I have a wide-ranging clientele, I, from quite young ones in their 20s. Um, I recently had one who was 18 and they have to have had that before 2018. So she was in the foster care system. Anyway, two people are in their 80s. We recently had a request from a 91-year-old woman in a nursing home. So, but the interesting thing is uh, the amount of trauma. Um, so sometimes when we have all our clients together for a healing camp or something, there's lots of yarning and we have a lot of fun and that but it is so exhausting and I said one day I was discussing this with one of my colleagues and I said it's just like the room is soaked with tragedy and you sort of almost take it on in your body and that's the nature of trauma all of these people who are going through the scheme. Now outside the scheme a lot of people if they have particularly good records or stuff like that they'll go civil and get a lot more money. There's been a lot of class actions against say the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church uh, but generally we just have people who are not interested in navigating that. They don't, it's too triggering for them to go through that. So we help them fill out an enormous long document, which is a one size fits all, because that also covers the child migrants who came out after the war and were told that their families were dead and things like that. And there are a whole lot from Malta. So it's got, do you have a visa? Do you, you know, where's your address and stuff? So these forms are very complex. So we help them navigate that and then we interview them and they tell us their story. And then we write it up like that and then we send it off to the scheme for them. So that's basically it. So Virginia, doing that type of work, I can imagine it would be very traumatic sort of work for you to go home at the end of the day. Are you looked after yourself as case workers? Do you call yourself case workers? Um, we all have to be qualified counsellors um, because of the nature of the work. Um, we don't always get to use those counselling things, but it helps with our clients. Um, it. I work for a wonderful organisation that thinks that's really important and part of your training must always be about how you don't take on vicarious trauma. It's very common in this field. Um, there are a lot of Indigenous workers who, in this field, counsellors and psychologists and that, and they have to be careful because of the nature of the transgenerational trauma.
and there's a lot more research being done about that. But I have to say that, um, yeah, my first year was really, really tough, but then I went on holidays, thought about it, and we have to have supervision too. That's part of our job contract, so we get monthly supervision. I personally go to my own psychologist, always have, every month. So it's, it's part of that journey of dealing with our own trauma. I was a DV victim. Well, I wasn't a DV victim. I left it, but that's why I was in a women's refuge. And the violence is, yeah, you take that on in your body. You don't forget, but you've got to learn to deal with it. Some people don't, um, and they will always lead very troubled lives, you know. It's a very hard area to work in, but it's so worthwhile. I have lovely clients and, you know, they ring me on weekends and that, and, you know, I don't mind because if they ring me, it's important. Have you been doing this work for some time? Like, is it something that um, you, is there something that you want to give back it seems to me, Virginia, in your life. Well, it was really interesting. I started doing a counselling diploma at an Aboriginal training authority. And then I got tapped and my current boss said, no, you've got to come and work for me because it's really hard to get people to work in that field. And so I've been there a year and a half now. Um, but I only I started my diploma about two years ago and then came on board so it was meant to be I think but as I say to people very few people completely change their career path and what they're doing and get a brand new job at 65 so but I managed to do that and I was a little bit proud of myself say a lot proud of yourself are you 65 are you 66 today I'm 66 today <laughs> look I can't um, retirement. I, yeah I don't see you retiring anytime soon love um, I want to quickly go back to talking about the Saints and um, stranded the and the and, and the go-betweens tell me about that life as whose muse were you I was Robert Forster's. That was at uni, and I'd already been friends with the Saints for a couple of years. And I used to help with the dancers. Chris Bailey comes from a large, extended Irish Catholic family, and his mother used to work for the local nuns. <laughs> Always made me laugh, but she was the fiercest Belfast woman of ever don't mess with a Belfast woman and she spoke so fast it took me a minute before I could actually figure out what she was saying it was always the way oh she was so hilarious oh she was just a force of nature that woman but I used to help run the dances and when they did I'm stranded I went and touted it round to all the record stations you know the radio stations in the city and uh, oh, that was a lot of fun um, and I had I had that single for years but I was in share housing and I had Karen from the go-betweens and they were both signed and people would nick 
my photos and my records so I wish I had them now they're worth quite a bit actually but yeah the Saints were really terrific and then they went off to London and yeah so but then the go-between started uh, I, I was in first and second year with Robert Forster so we had a wonderful time together and I think he was very impressed that I knew the Saints. Very impressed. Oh, I know. You were kind of the um, the uh, the the bridge between the two. The um, sort of would you say the um, the go betweens are sort of a bit more folksy band and um, and the Saints were the real badass ones. Oh yeah, the Saints were uh, they were punk before there was punk. <laughs> um, I had green hair before Johnny Rotten did. Um, you know, it was, yeah, um, they had a mainly boy clientele at the dances and that, but I'd drag all my girlfriends along. And I remember go-go dancing for the go-betweens once. That was really funny. So I am on one of their covers. Anyway, that was really fun. But, yes, the, the Saints, just really hardcore, but they really understood what they wanted to do. Egg Cooper... I won't say this on air because he'll get conceited, but he is a bit of a genius <laughs> and um, he'll never hear this. No. Oh, yes, he will. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. He'll get a big head anyway. But, you know, he's, he's a lovely bloke. But, yeah, it was just... There was such a sense of dynamism. And, you know, I'm Stranded is really about not being able to get a bus out or get out or get back. Isn't that interesting? I did not know that. Well, Sunday night, if I stayed up in town, um, there was no trains after nine o'clock from Central to out to Ipswich. So, you know, I had to... And my family didn't have a phone. I had to ring up a girlfriend a couple of blocks away. Said, you better go around. And you tell mum and dad, oh, sorry, I'll have to stay in town. And um, my parents would be so furious. I was 19, but, you know, that didn't matter. But, you know, sometimes does that seem like both politically and socially and not only time-wise, but just another generate, another era, another lifetime ago? Yes and no. I think what was expressed by punk was that absolute rage and anger and, uh, you know, what do they say now, that postcodes? Oh, you're in that sort of postcode, so you can't get insurance. You've got this. You've got a high crime rate. Everything's, like, battened down to that. And I think there was a lot of that going on in the 70s. But... I think young people today are probably really angry too. They see they haven't got the opportunities their parents or grandparents had. When you worked hard and you could get a house, you worked hard and if your wife chose to, she could stay home and have babies. You know, um, now you'd have to be really upper middle class and big income to have the luxury of having your wife or your husband, which happens, stay home. People, if they're not on two incomes, if you're on a single parent income, 
you're living in poverty. We know that. I imagine that young people these days are a seething cauldron of, you know, I'm so angry about this because I don't see choice in their life. Do you? They can't do any of the stuff we so happily took for granted. And that's what I said, go back to, we are the lucky country, but I just, I just wish our young people had more choice, you know. So beautifully put, and as always happens with me, I seem to run out of time. I'm gonna give you one quick question, and it is in three words, I am dot, dot, dot. Gosh, now that was really tricky. Um, I suppose. Is the I, first one fierce? I am feisty. <laughs> I don't mind a fight. Um, feisty, uh, um, caring. I do think I really care about our community. And the third thing would be oh, I don't know. I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's more that. than uh, that's more than three words. What about um, if I'm frightened of anything? It's oh, I'm just frightened of a future where our young people don't have opportunities. I really think a lot about that, especially as I get older. I just I'm frightened for our communities because they seem to be fracturing on bad lines and and afraid of migrants and this and that. Um, and I'm, yep, I suppose that's it. I am a little bit afraid for the future because you can only do so much. We've got a, a, a tidal wave of worldwide things coming our way, including the climate crisis, I think. Places like Kiribati are not going to exist in 10 years' time. We know this. I know some Kiribati people who live here you know that's terrifying what about um it's probably not a fair question to ask someone um, on their birthday but the last time i looked in the mirror dot 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 oh i was putting on my purple lipstick <laughs> how fabulous purple only someone like you could wear purple lipstick all right all the listeners know i like to ask people who their favourite royal is. Now, this person doesn't have to be living. They don't have to be British. Do you have a favourite royal? Somehow or other, I think a badass person like you might not go for the royals. Oh, I really rather admire Queen Victoria, especially her addiction to laudanum, which is, of course, is dope. <laughs> she used to have them made up in little cigarettes, and I thought, that's why she kept. She was so madly in love with her husband. That's why she had so many children. There's a little bit of substance, you think. You know, help with all the births, I suspect. (laughs) Perhaps they should put it on the National Health. Yay! Perfect answer for a girl of the 70s or a girl girl now, why not? All right, so if I was to ask you, Virginia, and somehow or other I think that you might be a dancing girl, you might be a dancing on the bar top type of girl or a dancing on the tables type of girl if I was to ask you what's the song that can't keep you off the dance floor it would be an ABBA choice of course child of the 70s didn't we love it you're a bit younger than me um dancing queen 
Dancing Queen. So it comes on, you are the Dancing Queen. Young and sweet, only 17. Yes, I think so. Um, particularly played a lot at gay bars and you just can't resist it, can you? You have to jump up and do it. <laughs> Virginia, I know I, I say it a lot, but you have been such a wonderful guest today. I have really enjoyed your insights into and thoughtfulness with your answers about the modern world and the things that you've done and the struggles that you've had and the fights that you've fought because it's women like you that they talk about standing on the shoulders of giants and I think for me I think that that it's, it's women like you who have blazed the trail before me to make it easier for the rest of us so I thank you very much and for the very least part being my guest today on Big Little Small Talk. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.